welcome to Criminal Justice News with the Justice Policy Institute. For more information, please visit our website, www.justicepolicy.org, or Facebook or Twitter at Justice Policy. Today, we speak with state-based strategist Keith Wallington about Maryland's omnibus crime bill, Senate Bill 122, being heard in House Judiciary Committee on April 3rd, 2018. GPI actually began work on this bill several years ago through the justice reinvestment process that took place starting in 2016 legislative session. So in 2016, the legislature adopted resolutions to make Maryland a justice reinvestment state. What that means is that it paved the way for comprehensive data-driven legislation to be passed that would reduce the overall prison population and take any money saved from the reduction in the prison population and reinvest that back into areas that increase and promote public safety. The Justice Reinvestment Act goal was to reduce the prison population with nonviolent offenses, particularly using data that was presented by the Pew Charitable Trust Foundation. After looking at that data and better understanding what the drivers were in the Maryland prison system, legislators were able to craft legislation around the areas that have shown to be the drivers, which is really parole reform. What we were able to find out through research and data is that many people that are going into the Maryland prison system are going as a result of failure while they're on parole or supervision. So JRA attempted to address some of those issues while also bringing in a treatment component so that folks that need the treatment are getting it in a way that they traditionally have not both mental health and substance abuse treatment. So, for example, when a judge orders someone to a mental health treatment bed, the wait in Maryland has been 180 days. With the JRA, that wait time has already been cut dramatically. Starting this year, different agencies have reported out how the justice reinvestment process impacted their agency. And I believe the mental health agency or behavioral health has reported that it's already shown to greatly reduce the amount of time someone has to wait from when a judge orders orders them into a treatment bed and when that bed becomes available. The important part to that was the funding that was put in. Unfortunately, unlike many other states, the Maryland governor has not put a lot of money up front to really kickstart the GRA process, but where he did put money in was in treatment beds. When we did GRA, we never thought that two years later, we would be working to beat back legislation that would undo the justice reinvestment process. When Governor Hogan signed the GRA legislation in May of 2016, he touted it as the most important bipartisan accomplishment of his tenure. So it's ironic that we're here, fast forward a year and a half, two years later, we're here trying to beat back legislation that he's pushed to introduce that would, one, increase the prison population, two, increase the cost of corrections in Maryland, and three, continue the disproportionate impact on minorities, which is something also the Cherry attempted to address the system's disproportionate impact on communities of color. So the governor's response to violent crime in Baltimore this past year was to introduce a crime packet that basically flies in the face of the JRA bill that he signed several years ago. We are here now to protect the gains that we made in JRA, not only protect those gains, but prevent us from going backwards in a way that we see the Trump Sessions administration trying to take us by bringing in mandatory minimums, for example, longer prison sentences, sentencing enhancements, and those sort of things. Again, the irony of the governor signing the JRA is the bill he just 
just introduced completely undoes The that. process for the governor's bill followed the normal process in Annapolis where it was introduced, given to a committee, allowed public hearings. That process was the normal process. But what wasn't normal was the omnibus bill that was born from that governor's packet. That bill was done very quickly. It was done without research, and it was done pretty much behind closed doors without public input. Common Cause of Maryland issued a official complaint because of the way that bill was negotiated. It was not done in a very public way. It was not done in a very trustful way, which is why so many people are skeptical about this bill, because it was cobbled together very quickly, not using research. Unlike GRA, we went through months of research and deliberations and very comprehensive process. This was not done that way. It was heard in the Senate, passed the Senate pretty overwhelmingly, and now it's been kicked over to the House, which is being heard as SB 122. It was not cross-file, so basically you're hearing the exact same bill we heard in the House. The process has created a lot of concern amongst advocates. It was a process in which the bills were introduced as a packet over on the Senate side. The original bill was the governor's bill, and that bill essentially died in the committee. But what was born from that bill was what we're looking at now, this monster we're looking at today, which is basically a version of the governor's bill scaled down, but still with the stuff in it that we don't like, the sentencing enhancements, the mandatory minimums, even though they don't call them mandatory minimums, they have this, the bill has the same impact. The biggest difference in the package that we're looking at today as opposed to the original package that, w that was introduced was the gang stuff was taken out. Otherwise, it's pretty identical to what the governor introduced, minus some of the funding that were put in for crime prevention programs. The testimony in the House focused on three things, which would be the process, the research, or lack thereof, and also the voice of victims. In terms of process, you know, we really wanted to highlight the way in which this bill was brought together in a very behind-the-scenes fashion that didn't allow for a lot of public input. In terms of the research, we wanted to contrast this with the GRA process that used a very comprehensive set of data research to inform what would eventually be the Justice Reinvestment Act. That was done over a period of time involving very comprehensive data process that drove the eventual 18 recommendations that went into that bill. Again, this bill used no research. One of the visuals you can't see here that we used during the testimony was to hold up a page of research showing, and it was just a sample of the research that's out there, showing that the mandatory minimums and longer sentencing, sentencing enhancements, does not work to improve public safety versus the research that shows that it does work. And that would have been a blank sheet of paper. The highlight from our testimony was around the lack of research that was used to put this together versus the plethora of research that was used for the GRA process. The other thing that we wanted to focus our testimony on was the victim's voice. We felt the victim's voice was mischaracterized in a way that victims call for more punitive responses to crime, whereas a national poll just showed the complete opposite. The victims aren't interested in more punitive responses. They're interested in programs and services to make sure, one, that they receive the services they need to heal, and two, that the person that victimized them receives services so they don't victimize anyone else. Victims understand that people who go into prison come out a lot of times as worse criminals. So from a victim's perspective, that money that we spend on prisons could be better spent on treatment that would then create a better public safety outcome. 
One of the things we do know is prison makes better criminals. We've seen no research to show that mandatory minimum or sentencing enhancement works to keep the public safe. There's just no research out there on that. The research shows the complete opposite, that mandatory minimums do not do anything to increase public safety. And there's a plethora of research that substantiates that. But again, the opposite is not true. There is no research that shows that these sentencing enhancements, mandatory minimums, and longer sentences actually work. Mandatory minimums do not work to protect the public safety. What it does do is increase prison costs and it disproportionately impacts African Americans. Most of the folks that receive prison sentences under mandatory minimum laws in Maryland are African Americans. Nine out of ten people who receive drug-related mandatory minimums in Maryland prisons are African Americans. So not only does it not work to keep us safe, but it further exasperates the disproportionate impact of the justice system on people of color. Speaking on behalf of victims means not cherry-picking victims, but speaking on behalf of all crime survivors. And a lot of times, the victim voices that are heard here in Annapolis at the legislature are not the voices of victims from the most impacted communities. And we're talking about basically young African-American males. A lot of times, their voice is not heard for whatever reason. They don't identify as victims. You can line up, and we've done this with some of the younger folks, and these are guys that did some very serious time. But when you ask them if they've ever been victimized, in life, all of them tell you no. And then you explain to them what a victim is. And then they're like, oh yeah, I've been robbed. I've been stabbed. I've been, you know. So once you really, the problem a lot of times is they don't identify with victims because they don't understand what a victim is. But once they better understand what a victim is, then you can extract that voice. But unfortunately, a lot of times young black males, you have to educate them on what a victim is. And a lot of times, you know, also the reality is they're not at a place where they're ready to use their voice to advocate. And one of the things we're trying to do as a justice reform community is to reach out and work with these individuals and provide them a platform, help them to understand that they've been victimized and teach them how to use that voice, that victim voice, to usher in the services that traditionally do not go to those communities. The VOCA funding, which is funding dedicated for victim services in Maryland, generally does not penetrate into communities that are most victimized. I would argue because those voices are not at the table. Our Senate side testimony drew the parallels between Trump Sessions playbook and what's in the governor's crime packet. And what we focused on was that what was being proposed by the governor is exactly what Trump Sessions has. It looks identical to some of the things that Trump Sessions have highlighted recently, particularly around mandatory minimums. We wanted to make sure folks realize that because we also know that the Trump Sessions approach doesn't work. And it's led us to where we are now. And it's, it would be basically, what's the definition of insanity? Continuing to do something and expecting different results. That's exactly what we're seeing out of the Trump sessions. They want to bring back the same mandatory minimums and sentencing enhancement that got us to where we are now in terms of overcrowding prisons and the disproportionate impact on poor minorities. So the Department of Legislative Services has attached a $202 million fiscal note to this packet based off of the proposals that are in there, the increased, particularly the need for more beds and also for increased prison time. The original projection for the Justice Reinvestment Act, once the governor signed it, was a 10-year, $88 million savings with this new proposal, obviously, that would completely wipe out any potential savings and, and come with very heavy price tag for 
Maryland taxpayers, not just now, but moving forward. Because once you build that prison at today's rate, where it's still $37,000, $38,000 per person in Maryland, we would still be paying beyond just the construction of that prison. It's the maintenance. And the maintenance is making sure you're maintaining people in those cells. If you contrast the money that's being put towards prison versus money being put towards prevention, then you can see where this proposal is grossly misguided. This bill, while it does put some money in for prevention, the $202 million that goes towards building a new prison grossly outshadows the $12 million that is going towards prevention. The $12 million funding is not as much as it sounds when you consider it is split up amongst five or six different programs. The current version does have a funding in the bill for programs like Safe Streets in Baltimore and LEAD that have proven to work to reduce crime in the most impacted communities. Unfortunately, the funding is contingent on accepting the other things in the bill, all the bad stuff. A lot of us see the funding as a sweetener. What we like to see is just a clean bill that addresses the funding versus killing the rest of the packet. The only thing that's really worth keeping in the entire packet is the funding piece. Everything else takes us backwards.